we started in September 2017 with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we've actually come all the way through Genesis and, and like halfway through Exodus. And here we are at Mount Sinai. So we've actually covered a lot of ground over the last three years. It's amazing what you can do over a span of time. Obviously, we cover Genesis and half of Exodus and all the time in between in a month or so or whatever would be unrealistic. But here we are. So we're at actually a very significant moment in biblical history. After tonight, I'm actually going to be deviating from our consecutive exposition of the book of Exodus, and we're going to be moving into a topical exposition of the Old Covenant. It's still going to be expository, of course, and I'm going to just start sharing with you good tips for living, or my own speculations and ideas about this topic or that. I'm still going to be trying to expose what the scripture is saying, and that's what expository preaching means. But instead of just working through Exodus 20, 21, 22, etc., etc., we're going to zoom out and look at the Old Covenant in terms of various topics. So God is about to give them, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, a covenant here at Sinai. And the substance of that covenant is spelled out through the rest of the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Numbers, in the book of Deuteronomy, amidst some more narrative. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to synthesize and organize some of that substance by topic, which I think will be easier for us to understand and more profitable for us than just working consecutively through. I don't think that it lends itself necessarily to that style of preaching the same way that zooming out, I think, will give us a good lay of the land. My hope and my prayer is that it will help us to understand better the nature of the Old Covenant, and that even in your personal devotions, that it will make more sense as you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So that's the sort of thing we'll be doing for the indefinite future. I say for the indefinite future because I don't know how long it will take, honestly. Maybe a couple of months, maybe a year, maybe longer. I really don't know, to be honest. I don't really have a very clear roadmap at this point, to be quite frank with you. But we're just going to take it a little bit at a time and until we feel like, okay, we have a good systematic grasp of the Old Covenant. That's the plan. Tonight, Exodus 19, then, is our last sermon for a while in terms of consecutive exposition. And Exodus 19 actually serves as a good introduction to the broad strokes of the Old Covenant. So what we're going to try to do is set up tonight something of where the Old Covenant fits in terms of the broad storyline of the Bible. Exodus 19 is going to help us with that. So let's begin with an exploration of the mountain of the Lord motif in the Bible. We touched on this a little bit in Exodus 15, as the Israelites have been brought across the Red Sea, and Moses leads the people in a song. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, says Exodus 15, 13. You have guided them by your strength 
to your holy abodes. And it goes on and it says in verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The mountain in the Bible stands for God's, the place of God's special presence. And this is in keeping with ancient Near Eastern cosmology. This was the typical thinking of people in that area of the world at the time of the writing of the Torah. The basic thinking was that there was the sea, which was kind of chaotic and represented death, chaos, etc. Then there was the land, which was the place where humans live, and this is kind of our world where we have our ordinary lives. And then there was the mountain where God or the gods were. And so you have this three-tiered cosmology. God seems to conform his mode of revelation to fit within the common understanding of people, the common way that they thought about cosmology at that time. For example, we see in Psalm 24, verses 1 to 3, the Lord speaking like this. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So that would be the second tier of ancient Near Eastern cosmology. The world and those that dwell therein. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So that speaks about the lowest level. And then it says in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And so the, the mountain is used in the Bible as the place of God's special presence. And so here in Exodus 19, God appears, not surprisingly, on a mountain, Mount Sinai. Here are the people, not in the sea, but on the land, which is the common abode of mankind. And God is specially present at the top of the mountain. He is going to give the covenant from a mountain, and then he is going to bring his people in and plant them on another mountain, namely Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And he's going to make his special presence there. And it's that mountain that David writes about in Psalm 24 when he says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The entire Bible follows a narrative of how God brings his people to dwell with him in his holy presence. And the mountain motif is significant in the storyline, not only in the very, very early books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but as we'll see tonight, throughout all the way to the book of Revelation. The entire Bible follows a narrative of how God brings his people to dwell with him in his very presence. However, it's not as easy as simply geographically relocating his people. Let's consider the requirements for ascending God's mountain. I want you to notice in Exodus 19 just how off-limits 
Mount Sinai is to the people. We see in verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So the people need to consecrate themselves, even to see the Lord descend on the mountain. But they're not even going to go up. It says, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. So this is, this is a no trespassing sign around the edge of the mountain. And it's not just going to be a small little fine. It's not, and it's not as if the police or the security guards or whatever are just going to kind of wink at it and look the other way. If you violate this no trespassing order, you will be killed. And you're to become such a pariah in the eyes of the rest of the people that they can't even touch you when they kill you. It says here, Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Obviously, this is shot with an arrow, not shot with a 9mm or whatever else. The people were not allowed to even touch the mountain, let alone to ascend it. This is very, very, very clear. Now, Moses is up on the top of the mountain. And in verse 21, the Lord says to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Now, I don't know if you've ever climbed a mountain, but it's not just a breeze. And it's perhaps this consideration that leads Moses to say to the Lord in verse 23, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. Perhaps it's that Moses has been a long time coming up and he just got up there, and the Lord says, Go down and tell them not to, not to even touch the mountain, not to come up it, not to break through. And perhaps Moses is just feeling like, Well, that is unnecessary because you already warned for whatever reason, this is the objection that Moses makes, right? And how does the Lord respond? Well, okay, that's reasonable. I guess I already did say that. No, he says, he says, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord. The Lord reiterates so clearly in this chapter that these people must not come into the place of his special presence. They are not allowed. They have to cleanse themselves even to see the mountain, but they are not clean enough to come all the way up the mountain. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands. Obviously, it's not merely a matter of having your hands sprayed with sanitizer, as in these COVID days. It's obviously not a matter of just going into the bathroom or into the kitchen and washing your hands with some hand soap and now you can go up the hill of the Lord. This is figurative language of moral purity. 
And the people are not pure enough to go up to the top of Mount Sinai into God's special presence. In Romans 10, it was providential that we read Romans 9 this morning because it went very well with the sermon. And listen, it's providential that we're in Romans 10 tonight because it also goes very well with the sermon. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 5, it says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Romans 10, 5. Pardon me, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does them shall live by them. So, Here's the paradigm that Exodus 19 gives us. The people are not yet pure enough to go up to the top of Mount Sinai until they keep God's law and get the righteousness that is required. They cannot be in God's special presence. They may not ascend. The status quo is that ordinary people cannot ascend God's holy hill. They do not have clean hands and a pure heart. And so they must cleanse themselves as best as they possibly can, even to come and look, but they they ought not to even dare to consider touching God's mountain or ascending God's mountain. In Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 8, we read similarly of this same kind of requirement as the mountain motif is developed later on. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, remember, Mount Zion, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. When we see later on that God's people are are dwelling with him on his mountain, They're dwelling with Him in faithfulness and righteousness. This is the seed that is being revealed to us of a doctrine that will be developed later on. The people can't go up. The status quo is they can't go up because they don't have clean hands and a pure heart. Later on in the biblical storyline, it is anticipated that the people will dwell with God. But they will dwell with Him, not in uncleanness and in purity, but in faithfulness and in righteousness. And so here we are at Sinai, and the people are not clean and pure. God is clean and pure, and so they are relegated to the second tier of ancient Near Eastern cosmology, which is just the normal ground. And they are not allowed to go up to the place of God's special presence. This is the tension that is being introduced to us in Exodus 19. The major obstacle then that must be overcome in the biblical storyline as God brings his people to dwell with him in the place of his special presence, the major obstacle that must be overcome is the sin of the people. So God has said, you've seen how I brought you out of Egypt, how I bore you 
on eagle's wings. You've seen how I have rescued you. In Exodus 15, you saw how I brought you across the Red Sea. It is my intention to plant you on my holy mountain, that you might live with me in the place of my abode. But this tension is introduced to us in Exodus 19. But if you're ever going to live with me on my holy mountain, on my holy hill, you're going to have to become a clean and pure people. Let's consider now Moses' unworthiness to ascend the hill on his own merits. Yes, Moses is permitted to ascend Sinai. Are we to infer then that the, the big takeaway here is that we must be as righteous as Moses? Look, you see here, only one man could go up Sinai, and that was Moses. We need a generation of Moseses. Will you be a Moses? Will you be a Moses? Will we be Moses in this generation? So many people will stay at the bottom of the mountain in uncleanness and impurity, but will you be a Moses who will be able to go? This is not the takeaway. This is not the way that we are to understand this passage. We see later on that Moses is banned from the promised land because of his sin. Moses doesn't even get to go be planted on God's mountain according to Exodus 15, 17, according to the promise in Exodus 15, 17. Moses doesn't even get to be an heir to the fulfillment of that promise as God brings his people in to the land of Israel and puts his temple in Jerusalem, the place of his special presence, and lets his people come and worship there. Moses doesn't even get to participate in that. Why? Because of his sin. So the takeaway from this passage isn't that Moses is so righteous that he can go up and everybody else is just status quo, average, ordinary Christians and we need to be more consecrated like Moses. Not at all. No less than us today, Moses was in need of an alien righteousness, as Martin Luther put it. That means an a, a, a righteousness that is not from around here. A righteousness that is not local to us. A righteousness that is not from within ourselves, but that is foreign to us, that is alien to us. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. That was as true of Moses as it is of me, as it is of you. And so if Moses was ever going to go into God's special presence, he had to be clothed in the righteousness of another. And of course, we're coming to Christ Jesus. Let me just show you from Hebrews that Moses was a believer in Christ. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, we read this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, 
for he was looking to the rewards. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. You see, all of these gospel foreshadowings and promises that we've seen in Genesis were not outside the consciousness of people then and there. Moses knew of the promise way back in the garden that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Moses knew of the promise to Abraham that in his offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Moses picked up on this idea that the Passover lamb wasn't just a, an oblation offered up to a bloodthirsty God who was hungry for lamb's meat and thirsty for lamb's blood, but rather that it was a picture of our need for a spotless substitute. By faith, then, Moses kept the Passover. By faith, Moses believed that God would really send a deliverer to rescue his people, to crush Satan, to overcome sin and death, and that it would be through him, ultimately, that God and man would be reconciled and be able to dwell together on God's holy mountain. And so Moses was a believer. He believed in a more general way than we do. Of course, Jesus of Nazareth was not a name, a title that Moses would have known, but Messiah was. Promised one was a deliverer, a king, a rescuer. These would have been concepts that Moses would have understood and would have believed. And so Moses was a believer in the Messiah. Moses was a believer in the Christ, which is just the Greek word for Messiah, who was coming. And Moses then was justified by faith. Moses then was clothed in the righteousness of another. And so it is not on the basis of Moses' righteousness that he's permitted to ascend up to the top of Sinai. But it is upon the righteousness of another that God can call Moses up and not strike him dead. For our God is a consuming fire and is of purer eyes than to behold evil. How could God call a man like Moses up and not incinerate him? Only if he is clothed in the righteousness of another. Let's consider the unworthiness of the children of Israel on their own merits. Romans chapter 2 and verse 13 teaches us this. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The claim to fame of the Israelites was that we have the law. This was the big boast of the Jews. Well, we have the law. We are God's special people. We are accepted by God because we have the law. But Paul says, not so fast. It's not the hearers of the law who will be justified, but the doers of the law. Now, have you done the law? This is Paul's logic in Romans. And he shows that no, the Jews have not done the law as they ought to have done. 
And so though they had God's moral requirements in the Ten Commandments, though they had God's ceremonial requirements, though they had God's civil commandments and requirements, they had breached all of them. You see, God wasn't concerned merely with outward, but with inward. Even where the Israelites had outwardly kept many of the ceremonial commandments, where they had done it with a bad heart, God counted that as sin. Listen in Isaiah 66 to what God says. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Listen, it's a contrast now with that man. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. You see, and so even if they were doing the right things like offering oxen and lambs and grain offerings, because their soul delighted in abominations and they were not humble and contrite in spirit and trembling at God's word, there was sin there, and God didn't count them as righteous. But it wasn't just that they always faithfully went through the external duties though their hearts were far from Him. Sometimes they just deviated from the external duties. In Malachi chapter 1, we read about that. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And on it goes, and the Lord says, uh, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So sometimes it was not even that the Jews were going through the right external things with a wrong heart. Many times it was that they were not even going through the right external things. They were saying, well, yeah, it requires a spotless lamb and good health, but, well, let's be honest, if I bring a blind lamb, who will even know? I, I've never seen God. I've never seen Yahweh. Let me just do what i got to do here. Let me just bring this blind lamb. And the Lord is displeased with this. And this is just ceremonies to say nothing of the moral breaches of God's law among the Jews 
violation of the Ten Commandments. Even if the people had really tried their best and really bought into the ceremonies and really offered them with sincerity, with a right heart, according to God's prescription, we still read in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the Israelites had no merit, certainly in Exodus 19, which would enable them on their own merit, on the cleanness of their own hands and the purity of their own hearts, to go up to the top of Mount Sinai to be in the place of God's special presence. Nor in biblical history did they get that merit. For though God had told them what they required, what he required, they were unable to do it and unwilling to do it. And they breached it in many ways. They broke God's moral commandments, they broke God's ceremonial commandments, and even if they had kept all of God's ceremonial commandments, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so we also see here that the Old Covenant is instructive rather than salvific. We're seeing here a tension that there needs to be a righteousness and that these people don't have it, therefore they cannot come up the mountain. God is about to give a whole bunch of laws, but we understand from the rest of Scripture that even those laws aren't going to produce in these people the cleanness, the cleanness of hands and the purity of heart that is required to ascend up the mountain. And so when we put two and two together, we say, we see that the Old Covenant was instructed. It taught it helped us understand, but it did not save. It was not sufficient to bring people up to the top of the mountain. So Moses was unworthy on his own merit. The people of Israel were unworthy on their own merit. It almost goes without saying, but let's consider now the unworthiness of the Gentiles on their own merit. If even those whom God had chosen to be his old covenant people, who were redeemed from Egypt and given God's law and God's special presence among them in the tabernacle and the pillar of cloud and fire, later in the temple, etc., etc., if even the children of Israel with all those special privileges came up short, then how much more the Gentiles? Our religious impulses not regulated or limited in any way by God's special revelation, led us into various forms of paganism throughout the world. We didn't get closer than the Jews did to cleanness of hands and purity of heart. Quite the opposite. We strayed, not even from the pretense of worshipping Yahweh, into the worship of all kinds of false gods. We didn't even really make a token effort at obeying God's commandments and statutes and laws. And so as Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, after showing that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, we can concur with him, none is righteous, no, not. Here was God in Exodus 19 on top of the mountain, 
Nobody in themselves had cleanness of hands and purity of heart sufficient to ascend the mountain. God brought Moses up, yes, but it wasn't because Moses was intrinsically good enough. If Moses were not clothed in the righteousness of another, a holy God would have to incinerate a sinful man like Moses on the spot. And so we see even there that there is a way for a man to ascend God's holy hill. But we also see this tension introduced that there is this requirement of purity of heart, cleanness of hands. The status quo is that the children of Israel don't have it. And of course, the Gentiles don't have it either. And so this tension is produced at this juncture of the storyline. The story moves along, the mountain motif is developed further and further. It's alluded to a surprisingly frequent number of times throughout the rest of the Bible in your personal devotions. Note how often a mountain is spoken about. If you have a habit of reading through the Bible once a year or once every couple of years, just know as you begin again in January, as you work your way through, how often this theme recurs. It's more than you might have thought. And sometimes you don't notice till someone points it out. But this is developed throughout the rest of the storyline of Scripture. What is the end of the story? What is written in the last chapter, so to speak, of the story? Will no one ascend God's holy hill? Because none is righteous, no, not one. Let's consider finally the end of all things. I want to flip you back to Zechariah, which I alluded to a few minutes ago. Chapter 8. God has been speaking about the judgment of his people. And then he says in chapter 8 and verse 3, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion. In other words, after departing, removing my special presence from Jerusalem for your sin, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people. And I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So God promises that though he has removed his presence, he will once again put it back. And God will once again dwell with his people. And he says, if it's marvelous in your eyes, does it follow that it should be marvelous in my eyes? What he means is, 
just because you can't see how it could possibly come to pass, does it mean that I couldn't possibly see how it could come to pass? It's a rhetorical question. The Lord's saying, just because you can't figure it out, leave it with me. I'm going to make sure it happens. I will once again dwell with you. And, and, and listen to the phrase, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. There is going to be a remnant of the Jewish people who will dwell with God on his holy mountain at the end of all things. And he will be their God, and they will be his people. Now, I want to flip you to Isaiah. Chapter 10 speaks about the judgment of Mount Zion and Jerusalem. But now listen to this in verse chapter 10 and verse 20. In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed, in the midst of all the earth. And then it goes on, and then in verse 11 it says, By what means this will be brought to pass? There shall come forth our shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Or decide by what disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Listen to this language. Striking down the wicked with a weapon from his mouth. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Listen, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Now, Isaiah 66. As I alluded to earlier, the Lord rebukes the insincere worship of his people. And then towards the end of the chapter, 
he explains that he will judge the wicked but dwell with the people who survive that judgment of the wicked. Listen as I read from verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together. So there's going to be this great judgment, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bowl, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. You catch that? The Gentiles are going to bring an offering to the mountain of God, just as the Jews have been bringing grain offerings to the mountain of God. And some of them also, that is Gentiles, I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord in verse 21. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So let me summarize all of that. God in Exodus 19 says, you're not clean enough, you're not pure enough to come up my mountain. This introduces attention into the biblical storyline. As this motif is developed through the rest of Scripture, we see that the Jews never become good enough by the covenant that was given at Sinai. In fact, they rebel against God. And so God withdraws His special presence from among them. And they are sent away into captivity in Babylon. The northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria. They're essentially devastating. God gathers them again together in their land, and there's the era of the second temple, but that never really rises to the level that it was at, even with Solomon and David. And so the question of the Lord's people in that second temple era is, will the Lord ever dwell with us again in the way that he has in the past? Will he make everything all right? Will he rescue us from our oppressors ultimately and finally? Or will we always be struggling along and limping along here in this tiny little nation where we're afraid of all the nations around us? Is this our lot in life forever? And God promises through the prophets 
that there will come a day when God will judge the nations for their wickedness, the Gentiles, and God will purify his own people, Israel, and he will gather out of their midst those who worship insincerely. And even if they do the right things, as Zechariah said, offering up grain offerings and oxen and lambs, it'll be just as much of an abomination in God's eyes as if they were sacrificing dogs and pigs. And so God is going to gather them out from among his people. God is going to punish the wicked paganism of the Gentile nations also. There's going to be this great devastation, this great judgment, in which a shoot from the stump of Jesse will come and strike down all of these wicked people with a weapon from his mouth. And after that, God is going to dwell again with his people in a renewed Jerusalem. And in that renewed Jerusalem, there will be not only Jews, but also Gentiles. And in fact, God will make some of them into priests. And so there will be this nation comprised of Jews and Gentiles, who are priests to God, who dwell with Him in cleanliness and purity in a renewed Jerusalem after a shoot from the stump of Jesse comes and strikes down the wicked with a weapon from his mouth. Now, I'm going to turn to three passages and then close. The first is back in Exodus 19. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Doesn't it sound like God is actually going to bring about, through the shoot from the stump of Jesse, that which he hypothetically promised, in Exodus 19, upon the condition of obedience? This is exactly what we see the Apostle Peter saying in the New Testament. Writing to Christians, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God brings about, later on, through Christ, what the Israelites had hypothetically placed before them but never could have attained by the law, by the old covenant. In Revelation chapter 1, we read, In verse 5 and 6, to him who, has, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, this is the language of Exodus 19. But what, what has happened is that they haven't become a holy nation and a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests by the Old Covenant. 
but rather by the work of Christ Jesus. And so Christ is able to accomplish that which the Old Covenant hypothetically promised, but which never could have actually been attained by the Old Covenant because of the sinfulness of the people. Jesus has come to make us new, to clothe us in His righteousness, to change our hearts, in order, give us His Spirit in order that the righteous requirement of the law could actually be fulfilled in us. In order that we could actually become what in Exodus 19 the people were expected to become. So the law really should have showed us how bad we are and how much we need an alien righteousness. The Old Covenant should have showed us this rather than have been pursued as a means of actually attaining that righteousness. Now we're back to Romans 10 in which it says, as we read at the beginning of our service, Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. For Moses writes on our, writes about a righteousness that is based on law. That those who keep the commandments should live by them. So Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So the Old Covenant promised that they would be a holy nation and a royal priesthood if they would obey. But they didn't obey. They could ascend God's holy mountain if they obeyed. But they didn't obey. And neither did the Gentiles. But Christ comes, clothes us in His righteousness, in order that we may justly ascend His holy hill, actually makes us qualitatively holy. This is sanctification in order that we might actually be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. He, and we come now to the end, in Revelation chapter 19, he comes to judge the nations, Jews and Gentiles alike. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is that destruction that is written about at the end of all things. And what's coming on the other side of the destruction, do you remember? A renewed Jerusalem in which God will live with the remnant of the Jews who are not destroyed in that cataclysmic event as well as the Gentiles who were not destroyed in that cataclysmic event. And it, the people who will remain after that cataclysmic event will be a holy nation 
and a kingdom of priests comprised from both Jews and Gentiles. As Isaiah 66 says, some of them, that is the Gentiles, I will take for Levites and priests. Now, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Again, this is the language of Isaiah 66. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is Isaiah's language. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So, I've given you a lot tonight. I think possibly too much. You can, you can tell that I'm very excited about this and really fired up about this. It's mind-blowing to trace this, this theme of God's people being planted on His mountain. Let me try to just summarize it really quickly and simply. It is God's plan to dwell with His people in the same place. That where God's special presence is, there God's people will be. In Exodus 19, God's special presence is on top of Sinai, but God's people can't go up there because they don't have cleanness of heart, or pardon me, cleanness of hands and purity of heart. God promises that his special presence will eventually be in Jerusalem. But again, they can't go into the Holy of Holies without cleanness of hands and purity of heart. The Old Covenant says, if you keep these commandments, you will live by them. Romans 10 tells us that Moses writes about a righteousness that is based on the law. So the Old Covenant says, if you do these commandments, then you're going to have the cleanness of hands and the purity of heart that you need to be on the top of Sinai or in the Holy of Holies. But of course we know that that never happens. And so God withdraws his presence and does not dwell in Jerusalem with his people the way that his people desire for him too. And so the question arises, is there any hope that this original possibility will ever be fulfilled? That God will dwell among us and that he will be our God and we will be his people and that we will have cleanness of hands and purity of heart and be together. Is this ever going to happen? God, through his Old Testament prophets, even, says, yes, it will happen. There will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse who will come to bring it about. And not every Jew will be there. Many of them will be killed, judged for their sin. Not every Gentile will be there. Many of them will be killed and judged for their sin. But after that cataclysmic judgment, there will be some Gentiles and there will be some Jews who will together be with God in a renewed Jerusalem. The shoot from the stump of Jesse will bring this about.
Of course, that's Jesus. And so what we see at the end of all things is that because of Jesus, there is a new Jerusalem where God dwells with man. And Gentiles can be there. And Jews can be there. But it's all because of Jesus and the covenant that he mediates, which as Hebrews 8 tells us, is better. And so we get to dwell with God on his holy mountain in the end, not because of Sinai, but because of another mountain, Mount Calvary. As I said, the old covenant was never given to save, but to instruct. So as we embark on a study of the old covenant in the weeks, months, years, I don't know, in the time to come, as we embark on a study of the old covenant, let us therefore seek instead to learn from rather than to submit to its regulations. We are partakers of a new covenant established at Mount Calvary rather than at Mount Sinai. And it is through this covenant that was established at Calvary rather than this covenant that was established at Sinai that all of these purposes of being planted on God's holy mountain and having Him dwell with us come to fulfillment. We may ascend God's holy hill in the end not because we are inherently righteous but because we are clothed in the righteousness of another. Not because of any righteousness that we obtained by the law as we sang earlier, not in me. Nothing in my hands I bring. At Sinai, justice there was great, and law was free. Duty there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found impossibility. But at Calvary, mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied. There my burdened soul found liberty. At Calvary, at Calvary, this is how we may ascend God's holy hill. This is how we may get the cleanness of hands and purity of heart that God requires in order to dwell with us forever, that we might be his people and that he might be our God. And so it's profitable for us to study the old covenant. It was given to instruct. But let us thank God, ultimately, not for Sinai, but for Calvary.